Thank you for coming to the podcast. It's episode 44 of Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and it is the week of UFC 205, the debut show at Madison Square Garden, the Mecca, as they call it. It's the first UFC card in 20 years since the brawl in Buffalo. Whether you are a casual MMA fan, someone who just likes Conor McGregor, Conor McGregor, or you're a hardcore MMA nerd like myself and my co-host Daniel Gumby Vreeland, UFC 205 has it all, and it's back in New York. Who knew political lobbying actually worked? And we have an equally stacked podcast to get you ready for UFC 205. We have surging welterweight Damian Maya. We have Strong Island's own Al Jermaine Sterling, the Funk Master. And to top it all off, we have original UFC owner and matchmaker Art Davey. 44 episodes deep, it's going to be our best show ever. And it's brought to you by the best mouthguard on the market. I'm talking about Sisu Mouthguards. You can talk, you can breathe, you can drink, all with the mouthguard in your mouth. It's 1.6 millimeters thin. They have something called a crumple zone technology. I don't really know what that means, but I know it protects your chompers from getting hit, and I know it can help protect your brain from CTE. If you do a high-impact sport or activity, or if you just like to turn it up on Saturday night, head on over to SISUGuard.com and find the right mouth guard for you. Episode 44 of Top Turtle MMA Podcast is brought to you by Sisu Mouthguards. We are rolling. I am David Tremonti. He is Daniel Gumby Breland. Top Turtle MMA Podcast. We are available wherever a podcast is being streamed. Tune in, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. You can follow the show at Top Turtle MMA. While other podcasts meander and go on and on, we like to get right to the point, especially when it comes to news of the day. Gumby, am I speaking truth here? You are speaking 100% truth. So let's just get right into it. It's the UFC 205 week. Biggest show of all time, whether you're a hardcore nerd or a casual fan. But I want to start with this. Your boy, John Jones, got a one-year suspension, retroactive to July 6th when he initially popped for his tainted supplement. Some people speculated he might get the Yoel Romero treatment, the Tim Dirty Bird means treatment, maybe only six months because he didn't know what he was taking. But the arbitration panel really kind of stuck it to him. They said he was very flippant in calling Cialis a quote unquote dick pill. And <laughs> he showed uh, really no, I guess, foresight as a pro athlete to not check what he was putting in his body. And they stuck it to him and gave him a one year suspension. Your thoughts? Yeah, well, I, I kind of agree with him on that one, because when you think about it, the other people, you know, like Tim Means, who got himself cleared uh, after proving that a, a supplement was tainted, you know, first of all, that that supplement is not regulated, and you know he thought he knew what he was taking, but they put things that weren't on the label in the supplement. So, like in his defense, did he know one hundred percent of what was going in his body? No, uh, but John Jones knew something bad was going in his body, right? Like th- those pills are designed to give you more testosterone, are they not? Right? Like, isn't that the general in a base scientific one hundred and one? Sure. Yeah, yeah, you know, coming from a, an MMA fan and an English teacher here, uh, <laughs> yeah, he he definitely doesn't have a credible argument that this is something that that he shouldn't be taking so i I agree with them sticking a year so let me just ask you this real quick gumby he comes back one year you know what it'll be international fight week it's going to be a mega show for the ufc you want to see john jones facing blank whoever the light 
heavyweight champion is. Okay, so you're giving him inst- Ronda Rousey treatment, instant title shot. I mean, you don't. This cat gets nine lives. He gets an instant title shot upon coming back. I, or does the UFC, you know, kind of punish him a little bit? I mean, you don't want to. Make him You don't want to say that you want to give him a title shot right away. But this guy has never, ever really lost. I mean, his only loss is a DQ to Matt Hamill. He is maybe the best fighter that's ever walked this earth. And to not give him a title shot is just you playing politics. Okay, I love it. Well, I also want to mention that if you want to get your John Jones fix and you're not going to get it in MMA for another, uh, let's call it nine months, uh, you can watch him on December 11th uh, fight for Chael Sonnen, Submission Underground. He will be going against Dan Henderson in a sub-only match. Are you pumped for this? I- I'm definitely going to watch it. I-, I don't know where Chael Sonnen came up with the idea to get John Jones and Dan Henderson for this, but it's brilliant. I mean, that's a fight we like wanted to see in MMA. Uh, you're never going to get to see it in MMA because one retired and one popped. So, like, this is perfect. I mean, good for Shale Sonnen. Fun fight. While I myself, as a huge submission grappling nerd and huge sub-only fan, would rather see someone from the Danaher Death Squad facing off, I do think what Shale is doing is genius. Getting UFC uh, fighters, no names, to compete in submission grappling is only going to help the sport of submission grappling. He's creating the crossover, which I think is really brilliant because there's not a crossover with EBI. EBI is fun. We get Vinny Magalhaes, we get Gary Tonin, the big names, but we don't get the MMA big names to cross over, and I think that's where you're going to get more fans for sub only hey pal joe soto did an ebi and it was pretty cool he made it to the finals yeah and 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 so did matt secor but but nobody's tuning in from there from mma well to that point i also want to mention uh the co-main event of submission underground in december is misha tate versus jessica i two ufc bantamweight stars yeah and i think that's a a great idea again on shale sunday's part but but didn't misha tate grapple the shit out of uh Jessica, I, like, why would Jessica... In their MMA fight. Yeah, I mean, like, that's a bad matchup for, for Jessica I. She's a good boxer, and I thought she almost had Misha beat with the boxing. But, I mean, Misha is on a different level grappling. All right, well, let's uh, kind of brush past the news because, you know what? This week is about one thing and one thing only. It's about UFC 205. It's the greatest card of all time on paper. Watch all the fights suck now after everyone said that. <laughs> um, but I want to kick it to you. Before we get to Damian Maya. let's just break down the two main events. The co-main events. Yeah. Uh, There are three title fights on this card, but the first one that we're going to talk about is the headliner. It's a guy by the name of Conor McGregor fighting Eddie Alvarez, the underground king. Conor McGregor, the minus 155 favorite. Eddie Alvarez, you could get as a plus 135 dog. Eddie, coming off the biggest win of his career, he beat down RDA. And I do have to say, I thought RDA was winning that fight for the first two and a half minutes until Eddie landed the big shot, and then it was night-night nurse. Uh, But he won the lightweight title in July of this year, beat Anthony Pettis before that, beat Gilbert Melendez for that. He's 3-1 and in the UFC. Conor McGregor is coming off, well, you already know it. Do I even have to say it? They were the two most watched fights in UFC history. Uh, split, uh, Split two fights with Nate Diaz, lost in the second second round on the first one via RNC and then won a uh, decision victory in August against Nate Diaz. That was at 170 pounds. That's another story for another day. If you want to go back uh, to a third fight, he beat Jose Aldo in all of 13 seconds back last December. So Connor is coming in at two and one in his last three. Gumby, who you got? Ah, this one is so freaking hard. I will say if you're in the betting community and you're thinking about laying money down on this fight, for any reason, you definitely got to bet Eddie Alvarez. There's no reason for this man to be an underdog in this fight. You know, like, if you want to say that you think Conor McGregor is going to win, I'll buy anybody could win this fight. But there's no reason to bet on uh, Conor McGregor coming up in weight. 
uh, as a favorite like this. Well, I also want to throw one prop at you, which is the fight doesn't go to decision is minus 285. You think with these two guys, with their punching uh, power and acumen, that one of these guys could end the night early? I, I think somebody could end the fight early, but I, I would say I wouldn't be surprised to see this go to decision. Connor has shown that when he's in a fight with somebody who's dangerous, especially, uh, you know, ground game dangerous like Nate Diaz he's smart enough to not deal with that and you know the thing about Eddie Alvarez is he's got some really good takedowns yeah well I was gonna say there's a huge difference between Nate Diaz and Eddie Alvarez and how they get you to the ground because that's very true but the the key to Conor McGregor staying away from that is not whether or not he can shuck off a takedown it's whether or not he can stay so far away that you don't feel comfortable making the takedown his footwork and keeping away from the guy is how he stays there and that to me is how conor mcgregor can be eddie alvarez is if he stays far enough away works his footwork and pecks away at him now this is what i'm gonna say i after watching eddie alvarez wrestle fuck anthony pettis for three rounds in boston earlier this year i see this fight playing out largely the same i think he's gonna grind conor down against the cage Take him down, ground and pound. If Chad Mendez could take down Connor and hold him down on 10 days notice, out of shape, out of breath, and at least do it for two rounds, I think Eddie Alvarez can do it for five. I know MMA math doesn't work that way, but that's the way I see it. But your final prediction, you're going with? So I'm going to go with Connor McGregor uh, in this one by decision. And the only reason I'm saying that is because, like you said, yeah, Chad Mendez held him down for two rounds. But you know what? Connor McGregor off of his back. Uh, while he's not going to submit you, he is going to get back up. And that's the difference between him and Anthony Pettis. All right. Well, we'll move now to the co-main event. This card is so friggin' stacked, it's mind-blowing. You have Tyron Woodley, the welterweight champ. Bet you thought you'd never hear that. Uh, I did not. <laughs> defending against Stephen Wonderboy Thompson, uh, who is surging. Woodley is on a three-fight win streak since losing to Rory McDonald back in June of 2014. He beat Dung Young Kim via TKO. Uh, split decision win over Kevin Gastelum, uh, who missed weight in that. Some people call him Kevin Fatsalum. And then he beat Robbie Lawler in the shock of all shocks back this le- uh, back in July to win the welterweight title. Steven Wonderboy Thompson, on the other hand, is coming off a uh, awesome performance against Rory McDonald. Sent him packing, so to speak, to Bellator as a unanimous decision win uh, five rounds back in June. Dismantled Johnny Hendricks with a TKO in February. He is on a... A seven fight win streak. Gumby, who you got? Uh, th- this one's much more clear cut to me. I'm going with Stephen Wonderboy Thompson on this one. I don't think I'm in a minority at all here. When I look back and think about Tyrone Woodley versus Robbie Lawler and, and the fact that I gave him little to no chance. Looking back, I probably should have given Tyrone Woodley a little bit more chance because Robbie Lawler's the type of guy who's going to brawl with somebody. You know, he did it with Rory McDonald. He did it with Johnny Hendricks. He's willing to step in the pocket and trade with you and get stung a little bit. And, and Tyrone Woodley's a guy who only needs one to really sting you. Steven Wonderboy Thompson is not going to do that. At all with Tyrone Woodley. You see him staying at distance, working the karate... You can't get in on him, right? Like, I, I mean, that's why Johnny Hendricks lost to him in the first place, right? Johnny, We all thought Johnny Hendricks was just going to get inside and take him down. But since he lost that fight to Matt Brown, where Matt Brown wrestled the hell out of him, his distance has gotten better and better and better and better. And I just can't envision a situation where Woodley stays away from those head kicks and Woodley stays away from those punches long enough 
to land his big shot and get inside. Yeah, and you know, I was going to bring up the fact that maybe Woodley could utilize that good old collegiate wrestling background. Um, you know, we saw Johnny Hendricks maybe attempt one or two takedowns in the two-minute fight this past February. But, you know, Woodley, I mean, you'd have to go back to his uh, fight against Carlos Condit uh, in May- March of 2014 for a fight where he even scored a takedown. Hasn't had a takedown in his last four fights. Yeah, and, and you know, like I said, he, he's got that big, powerful body. I think for the some of the reason is he trusts his hands so much that he doesn't go back to it. All right. Well, Wonderboy Thompson, the minus 200 favorite. Uh, Tyron Woodley, the plus 170 dog. Who are you taking? I'm definitely taking Wonderboy. Wonderboy by knockout. Uh, I'm going to say second or third round when, when Woodley starts to tire out a little bit. Well, speaking of the welterweight title, uh, we got a chance to speak with surging welterweight Damian Maya. What an honor and a pleasure. No one is representing Jits better than Damian Maya on this planet, and he is going to be quite interested in the outcome of this Wonderboy versus Woodley fight on Saturday. So we will play you that interview now, and I would be remiss not to mention that this interview is brought to you by New England Submission Fighting. New England Submission Fighting, a mixed martial arts gym in the lovely quaint, picturesque town of Amherst, Massachusetts. Classes six days a week. No gi submission grappling is the specialty of this gym. If you're in the Western Mass area, do yourself a favor and come on down. Tell them Dave and Gumby sent you. You'll be treated with a smile and a choke. New England Submission Fighting brings you our interview with Damian Maya. This is David Tremonti. I am here with my co-host, Daniel Gumby Vreeland. This is Top Turtle MMA Podcast, and we have the pleasure of speaking with UFC welterweight Damian Maya. Damian is on a six-fight win streak. Damian, it has been a pleasure to watch you go to work in the welterweight division. So we'll start with this. You cut down from 185. What makes you so good at welterweight? What's been so good about that cut? Uh, I don't think it's, it's just the cut. I think it's... You know, all the, the training that evolved, and, and you know, I've been evolving as, as an athlete and as a martial artist all those years. So I think, you know, with the, the weight cut was something to add with all this stuff. You know, it's something that made me be bigger and stronger, of course, in, in the division than I used to be at 185. But, you know, I think that's not the main reason, you know, I'm doing better in the last fights. Fights, I think it's, it's uh, mainly because of the, the way of training that, that we, we, we do right now. And, and all those years, you know, training and learning. What is changed in the training? Is it uh, more improved striking? Because that's one thing that I, I sort of thought is maybe the striking has gotten better, which has allowed you to implement your grappling game more. Or is it something else? What has changed in the training? I think it's, it's, you know, everything, you know, I think, uh, you know, since I dropped to welterweight, Eduardo Alonso, you know, my, my manager and, and head coach, he, 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 he got in charge of the, the training and, you know, he really, you know, brought some interesting stuff and, and actually, you know, he, he brought me back more to the grappling side of the game, you know, more to my jiu-jitsu game that I was improving. So I, yeah. Uh, we do the stand up, but we do more as a way of approaching, you know, and, and, and closing distance and, or keeping safe. So, uh, it's more, I think it's a way more, uh, effective of training. You've won six in a row. You've had three submissions. You've displayed just beautiful jujitsu and you're in talk for title contention. There is, of course, a very big fight going down at UFC 205. Tyron yes, Woodley. Will I will be, be there. 
that was going to be my question. Were you going <laughs> to? Did they invite you to that? Does Damian Maya have to buy his own ticket, or is the UFC flying you out? No, no, they fly. They are flying me there. You know, we we. I was in Manchester. You know, uh, like a month ago to to Henderson and Bisping. Uh, we talked. We we spoke to Dana. You know, uh, uh, Eduardo and I, and and we said, you know, that we want to be there because, you know, I I, I probably the next in line, and uh, he said, okay, you know, just send me a message next week, and I will I will uh, fix everything for you because, you know, this this event is kind of crazy. You know, it's like everybody wants to go, and and tickets are really expensive, so. You know, uh, everybody want to be guest fighter there. So, but then I understood that was very important for me because of the the title. So, did they tell you that you're next in line? Will you get the winner? No, they didn't tell. I think they they don't want to. You know, they don't want to promise nothing. But I, I think I am. You know, I think I don't see nobody. You know, getting the title shot. I think it's there is nobody that you would say like. Of course, in terms of sport, I think you know. I, I'm the one to get the title fight right now, but even, you know, if you think about ah, who is a guy who, who is a good uh, 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 guy who sales, you know, better, but you, I don't see nobody who really, really sales in, in, in this division right now who, who can, can sell the, the, the fight, you know, very well, you know, like a guy like uh, McGregor or something like that. So, you know, there is no reason to put another guy. Another guy. Yeah, and, and we certainly agree with that, and I definitely agree with the idea that definitely as far as sport goes, uh, there's nobody in front of you. So we have to ask, since you are going to the fight, uh, could you shoot us a prediction? Who do you got when Tyrone Woodley faces off with Stephen Wonderboy Thompson? I, you know, I think both both are pretty tough, and, you know, it can, you know, doesn't, doesn't what I'm going to say, doesn't mean that one is tougher than the other, but I think just the game... You know, if you think about the game, I think I will. I would give a little bit of edge to to Thompson because of his kind of game. You know, I think his kind of game can kind of complicate the game for Woodley because he he works very well with with the footwork and the distance. And, and Woodley, he needs the the to, to throw the big, you know, right hand. And and I think it will be hard with 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 Thompson moving all the time. Yeah, that that's well said. And and do you have a preference in in who you would rather face? Uh, I I think that all the time, you know. But uh, I try to find an answer for that. But I even myself, I don't have an answer for that. I I don't know. Uh, I, I I you know sometimes I think about the games and I think you know maybe Woodley would be bad and then I think yeah maybe Thompson. But you know I I don't have this. You know, I'm not sure about that, at least yet. That's totally fair. Now, uh, we heard, and, and correct us if, you, if we're wrong, that after your dominant performance over Carlos Condit, you said you would wait for a title shot no matter how long. Now, that was, I believe, back in August. It's a couple months later. Do you still feel the same way? Like, let me just throw a scenario out there. If GSP somehow worked out his contract situation, came back, and he got a title shot, would you continue to wait? Or would you want a fight in the meantime? Uh, it's it's so you know it's so many variables that you know I don't want even think about that you know I hope you know it takes a while for GSP solve his problem you know and <laughs> and I 
I hope you know this takes loyal lawyers and everything. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and, lawyers can <laughs> they'll mess things up. Let me tell you, they will. Yeah, they will draw I know, things I know how, how how it works in the United States. You know, when you get lawyers, nobody sometimes takes a while. You know, and and a lot of money involved. So, you know, I hope something like that happens. <laughs> <laughs> But you know, no, I'm kidding. I think I think he. You know, I really. You know, I think he's. He's one of the greatest. I think, you know, GSP and Anderson are the greatest ever. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't think, I really don't think he wants to come back for the title fight. I think he wants to come back to do really big fights, you know, to, to you know, get his name remembered forever. Because he's already, you know, he got so many, so many title fights that he won and he defended his belt so many times that I think, you know... I, I think he would c come back, you know, to fight a guy like McGregor or something like that, you know, yeah. do these fights just to make his name even bigger. I, I think it's safe to say you should be next in line. You know, the six wins in a row, what you've done uh, representing jiu-jitsu, it, it's really quite amazing in this age of where everyone's supposedly supposed to be good at all aspects. You know, you, mm -hmm. you and Wonder Boy have really done something quite interesting. Wonder Boy has imposed this karate style that no one's ever seen. Yes. And then on the flip yes. side, you're imposing jiu-jitsu. And what's so amazing is you're taking guys down, too, which I think there's always been this knock that, you know, the jiu-jitsu artist wants to play off his back and is a little more defensive and maybe doesn't have uh -huh. offensive takedowns. But you're taking guys down at will, seemingly. Yeah. Uh, you know, I the, the first thing, you know, is what I realize is You know, I can play well from my from my back, but it's much easier when that you take the guy down because most guys they they don't have you know a good guard and they 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 just you know get desperate when it when they go on bottom. So I just realized that you know if I can have a good wrestling skills would be easier. And from the bottom, the guy will try to to hold you you know and and wait for the round to to finish. So start to train a lot of wrestling and you know I just I I just. I say that all the time. I just love to learn, you know, and especially grappling things like, you know, wrestling and uh, which is like a a cousin martial arts of with jiu-jitsu. You know, I love to go and train wrestling. So I think that's why, you know, I I learned quickly and I had, you know, you know, great coaches in United States, United States, and and I keep improving. Absolutely, and and do you now uh, train more uh, no gi without without the gi, or are you still doing heavy uh, gi training? No, much much more no gi nowadays. You know, just because I've been training so much in my life with gi and competing so much that I think uh, I need to be more specific in my training. So I mainly train no gi. But for for instance, tomorrow Friday, you know, I will put my gi on, and every you know every Friday I do that when I'm not really near to the fight. So uh, even the, the first week of the camp or first couple of weeks, I, I still put in my gi. But every Friday, you know, I go train with the guys in the academy, the, the competitor guys. And it's good to have a different point of view because when you train with just MMA fighters, uh, they are more about, you know, trying to hold me. And I, but they don't, don't give me too much... Uh, uh, trouble, so it's more about hold and try to punch. But when I'm training with jujitsu guys, they really try to to go after and submit me. So that that's that's good to 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 have this kind of you know training also.
Absolutely. And and last question here. I'm just always curious on this. Have you had a chance to watch any Eddie Bravo Invitational? It's the submission-only tournament. Yes, I did. You know, actually, I had a, one of, of my students competing there. He was not training in my academy at that time. He was training with uh, Robert Drasdale in Vegas. Uh-huh. But uh, he he been my student since like 14, 15 years old. And, and he was in the United States for a while, and he competed there. And I think it's it's a very very interesting, you know, very interesting. I I, I never I, I know that you know if the fight is a draw, they start in positions, right? Uh, yes, correct. Yeah, that that's very interesting. I think it's 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 a, it's a good way to do. It. You know, I think we we gotta try, try all kind. We gotta be you know have open minds and try all kind of rules. I think it's it's great. You know, and always with the concept that you're looking for, for submission, you're looking to finish the fight. Uh, if, you, if you have this mentality, you know, you can throw all kind of rules. I think will be will be worth always. Yeah, well, we're big fans of it and, and happy to hear someone such as yourself also also sees the merits in it. I know, you know, the no-gi movement has, uh, has been met with some opposition, you know, from more of the BJJ 101, uh, you know, legacy guys. Um, uh-huh. but you know, glad to hear that, that you like it as well. Cause we think it is pushing the, the sport forward. Yeah, I think so. And, and for me, like I said, you know, there's no difference between BJJ, you know, gi and no gi or, or self-defense or MMA. When I started training jiu-jitsu, you know, was, we, we went there, we go to the academy to learn a martial art and, you know, BJJ was just a martial art, you know, that you, you train gi, no gi, self-defense. And sometimes you, you, we just, you know, put big gloves and, and try to take the guys down and, and do like MMA rules. So I think, you know, I, I see the, the, the BJJ as a complex system and a martial art. And I, it's very sad that you go to some academies, they just do part of that, you know, just some sport jiu-jitsu or, or just gi or just no gi. So in my academy, I try, you know, to give the whole experience to the students. Wow, that is awesome. That is great to hear. Well, Damien, we cannot thank you enough for the time. We know time is short. Uh, Damien will be at UFC 205 to watch the welterweight title shot. Damien, we can't thank you enough for the time, and we hope you hear some good news when that welterweight uh, title match is over about you getting the next shot. I hope so also, and I'm very confident that, you know, we're going to hear this good news after Thompson and Woodley fight. I just, you know, really... You know, cheer that nobody get hurt, uh, uh, and that's it. You know, that's the only thing that I want, that nobody get hurt and, and can't fight again, and and, and I, I think will be against me. We hope so too, Damien. Thank you so much for the time. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. So there you have it, Gumby. Damian Maya. Yeah, a freaking jujitsu legend. Uh, you got to love the guy. I-, I found it so intriguing that, you know, he's kind of ditching the gi because he realizes that for where he is in his career, it just doesn't make sense, uh, which-, which is so crazy because he's been, like you said in the interview, the flag bearer for gi for so long. Well, not only that, I mean, I always thought, you know, first of all, it's offensive jujitsu, which I think is awesome. He's not playing off his back like Hoist used to against yeah. unknowing wrestlers who would just fall into his guard. Uh, but also, you know, he said he's utilized 
utilizing American wrestling takedowns. I thought was cool. He gave a nod to judo, to sambo. So what he's really talking about is no-gi grappling, which yeah. is an amalgamation of you know American wrestling, uh, jiu-jitsu, judo, sambo. Yeah, and it's awesome to hear a guy like him talk about it that way. Now, real quick, because I want to stay on track with 205, but we can't bring up no-gi and not mention that the Eddie Bravo Invitational number 9 happened this past Sunday, and Gary Tonin put on a goddamn clinic against guys who outweighed him by 20, 30, 40 pounds. Yeah, it, it, absolutely crazy shit. I, I, I do think that, that finally the size caught up to him a little bit at the end when he's facing the highest of the high-level guys at 205, and he couldn't submit him. So he did have to win on escapes twice, um, but, but the level of competition in those 205 guys was crazy. I don't know if you got to catch all of the fights, but that Elliot Kelly twister... Uh, was just absolutely sick shit on um, Jason Flynn. My favorite part, and I wish this was a more accepted sport because I think it could have been a top 10 play on SportsCenter, was when Breeze went for the heel hook on Vinny Magales, and Magales just pulled it out of his pocket like a rabbit out of his hat. A magician gets the heel hook on him. Yeah, what a great fight, too. I love Tom Breeze, and I love Vinny Magales. Yeah, that was awesome. We won't go too far off on Jets because we have to stay on track with UFC 205. So before we get to Aljamain Sterling, I wanted you to uh, just react to this real quick. The third title fight, Gumby, on this <laughs> stacked card, a Polish Civil War. You have Joanna Janjacek, the minus 410 favorite, taking on uh, Karolina Kowalkowicz, who's a plus 330 dog. They're both from Poland. They both have Muay Thai backgrounds. What do you make of uh, this fight? Uh, that's... Uh, it's a great fight. Uh, as somebody who's, who's Polish in descent, uh, I love seeing the the Polish guys at the or gals at the top of the card. Um, I, I'm of the belief that you don't pick up against Joanna Janjacek until she proves that she's not going to win. Uh, she has earned the right to be in that Demetrius Johnson uh, GSP stands for me. That he, she's just one of those people you don't bet against unless they've lost. Uh, you're not going to be the first one to pick them to to lose a fight. I think she defends the takedowns and her striking's just more crisp. She's hands down got some of the best cardio in the history of MMA. And the best Muay Thai in the history it, of MMA. Definitely, definitely. And, and what she did to Claudia Gedalia when Gedalia clearly won rounds one and two with grappling, the clinic she put on just has me as a believer for life. Well, I just want to mention here that uh, since uh, coming into the UFC, Joanna is on a six-fight win streak. Uh, she has defended her title three times at this point. So we're getting into, you know, some pretty heavy territory here. Uh, and Carolina Kowalkowicz is 3-0 and herself in the UFC. Uh, just beat Rose Nama Yunus, who I think we all are always very impressed with in her overall MMA game. But Carolina was the better striker that night. So we're looking for a primary, uh, primarily a stand-up war here. But you're taking Joanna all day, all night, 24-7, 365. Absolutely. Huge fan. All right. And then... Uh, we move on to a very important fight at middleweight. You have the former champ, Chris Weidman, the minus 165 favorite, taking on Yoel Romero, the plus 145 uh, dog. He's like something out of 1980s pro wrestling. He comes from a Soviet country. He seems to cheat a lot. He's uh, looks like he's on steroids. In fact, got popped for what turned out to be a tainted supplement. We had Tim Kennedy on our show about three weeks ago. He said Yoel Romero should never be allowed to fight again because he's such a cheater, whether it be Stoolgate, whether it be eye pokes, whether it be the tainted supplements. That all aside, what do you make of this matchup and who you picking? I, I think it's such an intriguing matchup from like a really weird standpoint. 
standpoint. They're two guys who've proven that they have big, heavy hands, but really the allure to me here lands in the grappling. Uh, Chris Weidman, just such an excellent wrestler, even though he's kind of gone away from it. Yoel Romero, uh, you know, like a noted wrestling slash Olympic wrestler. Yeah, yeah, Olympic wrestling, and he's got some decent judo in his background that, uh, you know, just allows this to be such a fun grappling matchup. And, And I think... From that perspective, it'll be interesting to see which, if either of them, will go for it. Um, And I just have this feeling that we're going to see Chris Weidman be the first one to go for the grappling here. Um, Well, he certainly has better submission skills. And and you know what? And that's actually what I was just going to get to is that I do believe that Chris Weidman by sub is a real possibility here. Because from the top game, if I see Yoel Romero on his back, which I think is a real possibility, I think a Chris Weidman submission... Uh, with the sub game, just because UL freaked out, gave his back or, or left something available is a real possibility. All right. Very interesting. Well, Weidman wins by submission is plus 545 as a prop bet right now. That's a hell of a good prop bet out there. <laughs> All right. Well, we got to catch up with someone who is very interested by this fight because he is teammates with Chris Weidman uh, out of the Sarah Longo fight camp. And that is the funk master, Aljamain Sterling. We have been on the Funkmaster hype train since day one. We've talked about it all year on the podcast. We were very happy when the UFC resigned him when he went to free agency, and we finally got a chance to catch up with him. Schedules matched up, and we talked to him about a variety of subjects from his next fight, uh, you know, coming off the loss to Brian Caraway, and we will play that for you now. So, Top Turtle MMA Podcast is very proud to present us catching up with the Funkmaster, Aljamain Sterling. We have the pleasure of talking to the funk master, El Jermaine Sterling, who fights Rafaela Sunsau, uh Friday night, December 9th at UFC Fight Night Albany. Uh, El Jermaine, you're getting a home, uh, home state fight three hours north of New York City, three hours east of SUNY Cortland, where you went to school. Uh, how did it feel when you got the call to get that fight in New York? Uh, it felt great. You know, I, I mean, obviously I wanted to be on the MSG card. But just by looking at the ticket prices, most of my friends probably wouldn't be able to afford those, <laughs> uh, those tickets anyway. So, True. Um, you know, I, I, I'm just happy that I'm getting a fight in New York for the first time as a professional fighter. So this is going to be great to have the whole crowd pretty much there for me and uh, my teammates. So uh, I'm excited about the opportunity still. So. Yeah, very awesome. Very cool for you. Um, We've heard a lot just about fighters saying, like, the New York State Commission, they're new to MMA. A lot's been made about maybe having to get more extensive medical blood work done than if you were fighting in, let's say, Las Vegas. Have you you found the process more intensive? Is there any truth to that? I'm going to find out next week. I'm trying to get myself scheduled to get all my uh, medicals done now. I thought I was still good to go, but... Most of the medicals, they expire after six months, so I got to make sure I get everything up to par so I can uh, not have anything slow me down for this fight, you know? Absolutely. Get through the red tape so you can fight. Um, exactly. You mentioned that, uh, obviously, MSG going to be a, a big show, headlined by Connor and uh, Eddie Alvarez. Your teammate, Chris Weidman, will be fighting you all, Romero. The card is absolutely stacked. Did you get any reason as to why you couldn't make it on that? Did they say, no, we want you more on the Albany to kind of pump that that show up? Or did you ever get feedback as to why you couldn't make it on the MSG 205 card? No, I mean, to be honest, I didn't even ask. I mean, I, I could kind of put two and two together. I mean, I you know, I'm coming off of a loss. That's one. And, um, you know, I would I would 
like to think if I won that fight against Caraway that I would be in a much better position in terms of getting on that card. But, uh, I mean, if you look at the card from top to bottom, these guys, almost every single one of them could headline a card, you know? So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a huge thing. So I, I guess that's more so what it has to do with, with that kind of thing. And um, I think Albany just made sense in terms of where I was in my positioning right now. And we still have a huge fight. We're both ranked top 10. I think this is a huge opportunity for for either one of us to come back into title contention. I think that guy is going to be me. Yeah, absolutely. And you know what? Hey, it's not going to be the one and only time they run MSG. They'll obviously run it again in 2017. And if not MSG, the Barclays Center, which is, you know, maybe even a little easier for uh, your Strong Island uh, friends to access, right? The Barclays Center in Brooklyn. That would be cool, too. Yeah, yeah, that's actually right down the road. That's not too far at all. Just get on the uh, LIRR and we're all there. I love it. Um, so you mentioned Rafa Sansao, obviously a veteran in the bantamweight division. He's coming off a loss to the former champ TJ Dillashaw. What do you like about this matchup for you? What threats does a Sansao possess? What are you thinking going into this? You know, I, I, I'm I'm a realist, man. When when I look at these opponents and I look at these matchups, I'm real with myself in terms of my skill set. What I bring to the table and what do they bring to the table. And when I watch a Sun South fight, I don't see anything special. Uh, I mean, besides his, his stellar ground game, that's pretty much it. But his ground game is still to the point where he doesn't even use it. He, he's on the ground and he just holds guys in terms of just holding position and not really looking to finish guys. So just that alone, I think I have the advantage in terms of my chances of finishing him compared to his chances of finishing me. And I think I bring a lot more in the arsenal in terms of my striking. I, I don't think he does much in terms of the striking department. I'm not saying that I go out there and I'm throwing crazy combinations, but at the same time, I don't see anything that he's doing where it's, it's worrisome for me. I think once I once I start to throw in those kicks and I start to add in my fakes and my level changes, it's going to be a very frustrating night for him. He seems to have trouble with guys who utilize a lot of movement, as we saw with TJ both times that he fought. He fought Caraway, He fought Johnny Eduardo. Both guys I both fought. And um, I almost finished Caraway. Where so for him, I think he, uh, although he won, it didn't look like he he didn't really dominate to to say like, oh man, this guy's out of my league kind of kind of thing. And I know you can't really do MMA math, but he also fought Johnny Eduardo. Where I finished Johnny Eduardo, I think Johnny also won a round against him. So I think I think there's a lot of things going in my favor right now. He's a very safe fighter, and that's why he's won seven fights in a row and never got the title shot. Where so I was about to leapfrog him just based on me going out there and finishing opponents. And once again, I'm just stating the facts. This is this is me being a realist and looking at the what what just makes sense in my opinion and, and also my coach's opinion. So for me, I think this is a great matchup. So I I think this is my fight to lose. I think this is another fight like my last one. It's, it's my fight to lose. I think I have all the tools and abilities in the world to become a world champion, and it's up to me to just go out there and make sure my head is on right and get it done. Yeah, and, and we absolutely agree with that, too. You know, obviously, the uh, the, the promise here from you uh, after those first four fights that were so impressive, uh, you know, not to, to dwell on the, the point, but you did mention the loss to Caraway, uh, a split decision loss brought to you to four and one. Uh, were there big changes to the fight camp after that, or is it just one of those things where, you know, you look at the fight and you say, oh, well, he was, you know, better at wrestling that day and held me down a little bit extra, um, or did you go make, you know, large changes? You know what? To be 100% honest, the only real changes that I've made was uh, I, I haven't lifted as heavy um, for the Caraway fight. I was large and in charge, picking things up and putting them down. <laughs> so um, 
It's actually it's pretty funny, man. That was the biggest I've ever been for any fight. I got up to about 152. Normally, I'm up to 147, 48. So that extra few pounds really made a difference. But I felt good, man. I felt powerful. Like It's hard to explain. So um, with this fight camp, we've been doing a lot more strength and conditioning in terms of circuits and that kind of thing. Because I just don't feel, after that first round, normally I'm, I'm grappling. And I, we, we're doing seven, eight, five-minute rounds of just straight grappling with black belts, brown belts. And for me to gas out. In, in that fight after five minutes of squeezing, not even five minutes of squeezing, but five, you know, uh, one round of a of a fight where we just had one crazy grappling exchange and I was pretty much dominating the entire first round. I just didn't, it just didn't make sense to me. So we decided to let um, Ray Longo actually control and dictate the entire circuits that we put myself through. And I, I tell you what, man, my arms have never felt any better in terms of the uh, muscle endurance. I've, I've never felt this great in terms of, Throwing a bunch of punches and sparring and, and not actually feeling fatigued and feel like my arms are built, filled up with lactic acid. So, I, I you know, I put my trust in him and he told me, he's like, you know what, you just stick with me in this one and trust me. And I just want you to believe in what I am what I want you to do. I know you like to do your own lifts and stuff like that, but let me dictate it for this fight and we'll, we'll see what happens. And so far, I can't complain. I'm boxing and I'm throwing, I want to say easily over 100 punches per round and um Wow. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm excited, man. I am. I am really, really excited about this fight. I think this is going to be the best shape that I'm ever going to. I've ever been in. I felt like that for the Caraway fight, but I had a really crazy adrenaline dump. I think um, warming up three times that day didn't really pay, uh, do me any favors. But um, that's just that's just my my mindset. I love to win, you know. And anything I feel like that's going to give me a little bit of an edge legally, I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. So. I don't know. Yeah, it, that's so fascinating that you say that, and it's going to be interesting to see like how the cardio and and how you manage that. What you're saying about not having the lactic acid acid build up in your arms because you you dominated the first round for the most part in the in the caraway fight, and it, it did kind of seem like you gassed there. Uh, you know, me I I can't remember exactly. Maybe somewhere in the second. So very interesting and something to look out for, I guess, in the next one. Um, we wanted to take this back. Uh, you were a free agent earlier this year. Um, and it's, it's a changing MMA landscape, as we all know, in the past year, you know, the UFC has let some fighters contracts expire, or I should say some fighters, fighters have let their own contracts expire. And it seems like the UFC has kind of had a take it or leave it approach with their final offer. You've seen Matt Mitrione, Benson (coughs) Henderson, Rory McDonald, Chael Sonnen all end up in Bellator. And it feels like you and Overeem were the only two guys who went to that free agency period and the UFC made, you know, much of a play to, to bring you back. Are you complimented by this? Do you take that as a big compliment? You know, you were one of those free agents. And now at this point, one of the few they actually brought back. Yeah, for sure. Um, I don't know what that's all about. I, you know, I think I think it comes down to what you bring to the table. And, you know, I, I don't like talking about race as much, but. I think being where I'm from and growing up in the neighborhood I've grown up in, and the majority of it is a Hispanic and black town. Um, I think I appeal to the African-American community in terms of the hip-hop culture. And I don't think you have any fighters who are like me in terms of, in terms of that, what I just mentioned. There's no one who's appealing to, to the guys who listen to Schoolboy Q and, and uh, Kendrick Lamar's. And, you know, there's, there's nobody like that who's within the culture who understands who can be a face of that 
that uh, demographic, so to say. Um, so for me, I can see why that probably made more sense for them in terms of my value that I bring to the table. And not for nothing, I was winning fights. I had three finishes in my last my last three before the uh, free agency started. Yeah, so, and, and also age, too. You know, you're one of the younger guys, too. And I think they saw that you had the most, you know, you're more on the upside where a lot of the, the other names I mentioned. Rory McDonald yeah. aside, he was in, Rory was in his prime. But other than that, you know, it was kind of some older fighters on the wrong side of 30. And it's fascinating what you bring up with the demographic, too, because it just it just hit me. MMA and baseball kind of have the same problem in that they, yeah. they don't yeah. really yeah. appeal right to that to the urban, the inner city fan. You know, I think they pull from predominantly just like, you know, the white middle class and then high international. You know, there's yeah. a lot of international fighters, but not so many, you know, urban American fighters that that people could identify with so that's fascinating yeah that that little uh snippet i did with eric b took off like everyone loved that that was like the their most favorite promo that anyone has ever seen for the ufc in terms of my fan base and the people who are actually reaching out to me and telling me how much they they really enjoyed seeing that and how much it resonated with them and it gave them something to kind of gravitate to for somebody pretty much somebody to root for kind of thing so I, I understand that. So for me, I think that's what it more so was for me. Uh, so I can't really speak for Overeem. I mean, he's he's from Holland, you know, so that's probably what that is, too. So I think it's just all about what you bring to the table. And you got to you got to know your worth and you got to know what there's just a lot of there's a lot of factors, man. So I, I take it as a compliment, but I also take it as, you know, it was a win for them as much as, as it was for me. So. You know that's that's how business works these days. So I just make it. I take it for what it is. Yeah, and and I uh, along with Dave here absolutely think that that's a, a solid point. Um, I also want want to just throw out there too. Obviously, the style aspect of of your jujitsu game specifically. We're huge jujitsu nerds here. Um, we wanted to talk a little bit about the arm triangle you got from the bottom on Takeya Mizugaki. Uh, is that a move you typically go for a lot uh, in training, grappling competitions, or is that just something you found in the moment? <laughs> you know what's crazy? I've never once did that move uh, from the bottom, that submission, like in that particular way or setup ever in my life until that fight. And then the the very next time I stepped onto the mat in training, I hit the move in practice again. I was like, wow, this actually, <laughs> it wasn't a fluke. It was just, it's an, it's an actual real setup. And I actually went through the tape and I watched it and then it just, I just happened to fall into it in practice. And I've been hitting it from half guard too. When guys are like trying to pass, and guys are doing the, when they're trying to do like that that knee bar where they step over the the mm-hmm. top from the half guard to so you're in half guard mm-hmm. and then you step over the top and looking for the knee bar and they're like sitting on your stomach yeah yeah kind of position yeah looking and almost for like, like a four eleven or something like that or going for the knee bar yeah yeah so I, I I don't know what it is I got like freaking monkey man strength or some some <laughs> shit I don't know but I'm I'm actually able to reach up while these guys are sitting on me. And pull them down and lock them in, and that's how crazy my squeeze is, where I can just pull them into a, a arm triangle from from my back, which is pretty insane. But I, I, it just lets me know that there's a bunch of different things you could do in jujitsu, and that's why I love it, and I think that's why my style is so entertaining because I don't even know what I'm gonna do sometimes. Cause I just, <laughs> I'm, I'm literally just freestyling, and I'm not trying to come off like like a like a big shot or anything. But that's just how my game is. It's, it's been the same for wrestling because. I never had good fundamentals, and I just kind of just felt things. It was just kind of a feel process, and that's the way I wrestled funk wrestling, funk style. 
and the same way I grapple. Well, Aljamain, we, we've kept you a little bit longer than we promised. We can't thank you enough for the time. Aljamain Sterling, the Funk Master, fights Rafael Asuncao Friday night, December 9th, UFC Fight Night, uh, debut show for UFC in Albany. Aljamain, we can't thank you enough for the time, and we wish you luck in the fight. Thank you, guys. And if you guys want to follow my training, you can follow my training on aljamainsterling.com. I got my, my video vlog series, Feeding the Streets, because that's what we're doing. We're trying to lead by example over here, so trying to show these kids a, a better way. All right, there you have it, Gumby. Aljamain Sterling. Yeah, and you, you mentioned that we we're you know fans of him since day one. Actually, my first article for Fight Magazine that I ever wrote was a profile of him uh, as he was about to appear on the undercard for the first time ever. Uh, so, you know, obviously I've, I've been supporting him for a really long time, so it's awesome to get to catch up on him, and I, I can't wait to see his fight. Yeah, well, you mentioned your writing, Gumby, and I want to take a minute just to mention that both of us are writers. You, of course, are the co-editor of MMA-Manifesto.com, so you can head on there, head on over there and catch Gumby's writing. And we both write for Overtime.News. Head on over to their MMA section, and you can catch our uh, writings once a week. So we should keep moving on the UFC 205 train. The train never stops. We're still in the main card right now. That's it's crazy a- that we're not even done with the main card, and we've talked about all those fights. And uh, we'll move now to uh, Kevin Gastelum facing Donald Cerrone. Big fight at welterweight. Uh, you have Donald Cerrone, the minus 155 favorite. Kevin Gastelum, the plus 135 dog who you got? I, I got to go with Cerrone on this one. I, I know Gastelum is the type of guy who takes people out of their game plan by putting them up against the cage. I mean, he did it to Uriah Hall at 185, for Christ's sakes. But I just can't imagine Cerrone being taken out of his element by that. You know, he's good in close quarters. He's good with the knees. He's good with the Muay Thai plum. Uh, and he's better at distance than Gastelum is. So unless Gastelum gets him on his back, and even then, you got to watch for the Cerrone triangle. Uh, I see Cerrone winning this in a very exciting fight, though. This is actually my pick for fight of the night. It's so surprising that after Cerrone lost to RDA in December uh, for the lightweight title, he's reeled off three wins in a row at welterweight. But you know what? Sometimes when you don't do the horrible uh, weight cut, guys find a more comfortable home at the higher weight class. And, uh, you know, with Ke- uh, with Donald Cerrone as a household name, he's never far away from a title shot. Uh, so, you know, we spoke with Damian Maya earlier in the program. Cerrone has since stated that he would like to fight Damian Maya for the chance at the title. But I do believe Maya's next in line. And then maybe if Cerrone gets past Gastelum, you know, he would be right there in the mix or always a late injury replacement possibility because Cerrone will fight every three weeks if, if you ask him to. Yeah, I, I would love to see that fight with him and Robbie Lawler get put back together after this one. Oh, if, Cerrone if versus Robbie, Robbie Lawler. Lawler. Yeah, kick it around, you know, uh, Super Bowl time. All right, well, kicking off the main card, uh, you have a very interesting fight at uh, women's bantamweight. You have Misha Tate, the former champion, coming off her devastating loss to Amanda Nunes, which was the main event of UFC 200. UFC 200 was kind of a depressing show in retrospect, by the way. <laughs> uh, but she'll be fighting Rocky Pennington, a favorite fighter of this show, kind of a plucky underdog, if you ask me. And she is, in this case, a plus 155 dog. Who you taking, Gumby? I actually think that this is a really good fight for Rocky Pennington in that her scrambles might be better than Misha Tate's. Is Misha Tate's grappling straight up much better than Rocky Pennington? Most likely, yeah. If Misha Tate can implement her game and not get it into a scramble, she's got a really good chance of winning this, maybe even by submission. But if if Rocky turns this into a scramble, her hands are dangerous and her submissions are dangerous in the transition. 
If I have to pick, gun to my head, I'm picking Misha Tate, probably by a decision here, but definitely an interesting underdog. I think you bring up a good point. I would say that Misha is the, this is like a classic thing to say, but Misha is the better all-around MMA fighter. I do think Rocky Pennington has better hands. I, I think her hands might be better, and you know, Misha got stung by Jessica I, so it, you know, it's not out of the realm of possibility that in the scramble, Rocky tags her. All right, I'm going to keep saying this over and over again. This card is so stacked. <laughs> We're moving now to the FS1 prelims uh, and main eventing those prelims, so to speak. The last fight heading into the pay-per-view, you have Frankie motherfucking Edgar taking on Jeremy Stevens at uh, featherweight. Again, this is a fight that's going to have title implications down the line. Frankie trying to get back into things after losing to Jose Aldo in that interim title fight uh, back at UFC 200. Frankie, though, the minus 340 favorite here, heavy favorite. Jeremy Stevens, the plus 280 dog. And I do want to mention that after Ioana Jacek, who is the most solid, strongest favorite on the card, uh, Frankie Edgar comes in second as minus 340. So gamblers feel pretty confident that uh, that Edgar is going to win here. Do you agree or disagree? I agree that I think Edgar's a smart play here. Uh, I just think he moves too well to get hit by uh, Jeremy Stevens. Stevens is certainly good enough to tag him, but the difference in their their striking ability, uh, I think it lies in speed, and I think that makes this an easy fight for Frankie Edgar to take. Um, so I'm going with Frankie on this one. All right, fair enough. So the answer for Gumby is the answer, Frankie Edgar, in this fight. And we'll move on now. This fight is just bonkers good. You have the Eagle, Habib Nurmagomedov. Nurmagomedov, uh, it's tough to say his name right, uh, is on a seven-fight win streak. I think the world of this man, I think his takedowns are something quite special. Uh, he set the record, I believe, with 21 against Abel Trujillo. Uh, but that being said, he's coming off a win over um, Daryl Horcher, kind of like those old 1980s uh, WWF squash matches against a jobber, but a win is a win is a win. Uh, and a win over Michael Johnson would put him right in title contention, obviously. Uh, Michael Johnson coming off a big win over Dustin Poirier with a KO, and that was back in September. Uh, the odds on this one, Gumby, just in case you were wondering if you are a betting man, which I know you are a betting man, Habib is the minus 280 favorite. Michael Johnson, the plus 240 dog. Who you got? I, again, this is one of those matches where I think if you put a gun to my head, told me I had to pick, I would pick Habib Nurmagomedov. I think his takedowns are just too good. But I will say of all of the people in that division that could give Habib some trouble, apart from Eddie Alvarez, one of the few I would put in there is Michael Johnson just because of his takedown game and his pressure game. I mean, if you think back to when he fought Edson Barboza, he took the pressure to Edson Barboza so much so that he nullified Edson Barboza's striking game. Now, can he defend the takedown under Megamedov? No. Probably not, and that's probably going to lead to Habib win, but it does make it a more intriguing matchup than most of the people you could put him with in that division. Yeah, I'm going Habib all day here, but you know I am an unapologetic Eagle fan. Now, let me ask you this. Obviously, you saw Tony Ferguson's amazing win over RDA this past I, weekend. I did indeed. He's now on a nine-fight win streak. If Habib beats Michael Johnson, he'll be on an eight-fight win streak. What do you do here? Whose title shot is it? I'd say 100% Tony Ferguson. Uh, Tony Ferguson just put on a striking clinic, made himself not only look like the best person to give a title shot to, but also super marketable. He was in an absolutely thrilling fight that might be fight of the year. When have you ever watched Habib Nurmagomedov fight and said, that looks like a fight that casual fans will enjoy? Well, hey, man, I'm an MMA purist. I, I, I know, just want to go I know with you the best are, guy. and I know you want the best fight. But in that regards, 
Tony Ferguson sells to the entire country. Habib sells to you. Well, here's actually the point I wanted to make because I didn't want to get in a debate with you over who deserves the shot. Just the fact that we have to have a debate and there are no clear-cut lines I think is something that a lot of fighters have been bringing up recently. How do you know who deserves a title shot, who gets a title shot? You're hearing more and more about uh, fighters' union with things such as this because a title shot is huge. It has uh, ramifications for a fighter's earning potential if they get to be champion because then they get pay-per-view points, higher Reebok sponsorship money. So who better to talk about something like this than the original owner and co-founder of the UFC? It was this man's idea. It was his brainchild. We got a chance to talk to Art Davey. How awesome was that? that? I mean, it's just amazing to talk to the guy who started this thing that it has just spun out of control into something where you pay $16,000 for a ticket. And we asked him about that. Uh, so we will play this interview for you now. This was Top Turtle MMA Podcast, catching up with Art Davey. We have the pleasure and the honor of speaking to founder of the UFC, Art Davey. Art, let's kick right into it. UFC 205 may be the biggest event of all time. Uh, what fight is the former owner founder of the UFC looking forward to the most this weekend? I'll be really honest. I haven't been following 205 at all. Uh, I know that this is a big event. I'm more excited and concerned that it is taking place at Madison Square Garden. You know, the UFC uh, and I have not been particularly close in the last few years. Uh, in fact, I very rarely hear from them. I was invited to the 20th anniversary show, but I haven't heard from them since. So in all fairness, um, I'm not as close to the event as I used to be. And I'm excited about the fact that even though we opened up the uh, New York market back on uh, September 8th, 1995 in Buffalo, it's taken you know more than 20 years for the UFC to return to New York, and I think that's great. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I actually I had a question coming up here. Uh, and it's it's an awkward question to ask and maybe one awkward to answer. But you brought it up that the relationship maybe has been a little severed in the past few years. They put Bob Meyerowitz in the Hall of Fame this past summer. Now, as a big Art Davey fan, someone who enjoyed the absolute heck out of your book, Bob Meyerowitz, you know, you came to him with the idea of the UFC. He obviously had the power and the clout in the pay-per-view industry. Where, did you feel slighted at all? As a fan, I felt slighted for you, Art. How did you well, feel about him getting in the Hall of Fame? Well, guys, I really appreciate that sentiment. It's, uh, it's uh, you know, uh, to hear it from people who know the, the MMA world, as you guys do, is, is certainly a, 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 a great thing for me to, uh, to hear that. But in all fairness, you know, the narrative really was that they bought it from Bob in 2001. And, um, you know, I had sold my interest and Horion's interest to Bob in 1995. But I stayed on board till January of 98. But the Fertitta brothers bought the UFC from Bob in 2001. And I think that it's, um, it made sense because that was the, the relationship that they had. I was already gone by the time that they bought it from Bob. And um, in all fairness, uh, the, 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 the real irony, though, is that, of course, Bob was not a UFC one. He was, um, he was concerned, he told Campbell McLaren, that perhaps someone might die, and he decided to stay home. And then, of course, the uh, the additional irony is that he didn't come to the 20th anniversary show, UFC 167, in November of, of 2013. And the final irony, of course, is that he didn't come uh, in person to the Hall of Fame uh, ceremony this last July to accept the award. 
But um, Bob Marowitz was a great TV guy. He was never particularly knowledgeable about the fighting world, as I pointed out in my book, Is This Legal? He didn't know a wristwatch from a wristlock. <laughs> Right. And well, so you mentioned the 20th anniversary show three years ago to the date. I mean, I, I'm sure, you know, something political maybe on on the back end that you don't know about. But can is there something you can point to as to why the relationship between you and the UFC is strained over the past three years? Well, you know, I, I, as I've said before in some interviews and to some friends, it, the narrative is not hard to understand. They bought it in 2001. And you have to remember that even though John McCarthy, Jeff Blatnick, and I had made tremendous rule changes to the UFC, we had, we had you know, incorporated virtually 85 to 90% of the rules which were adopted by the New Jersey State Athletic Commission as the Unified Rules of MMA in 2001. But the narrative was is that Art Davey, as matchmaker, booker, and UFA commissioner, was, uh, was one of the architects of the the, uh, the the spectacle UFC, you know, style versus style, bringing in the Tank Abbots and uh, the wrestlers and the wrestlers. So the narrative was is that when they brought it in, and they bought it in 2001, and Lorenzo had been one of the commissioners on the Nevada State Athletic Commission, they were able to get it sanctioned. They were able to move it forward. And uh, in all fairness, with their... Uh, with their acquisition of the Fox deal a few years ago, they were able to bring it to the mainstream. So if you understand the narrative, it's not complicated to think that they were going to continue to tell people that they basically invented the event in 2001. I'm not offended by that, and yet I appreciate my fans in some cases are, you know, have been defensive for me, and I, I love the fact that there are fans out there, old-school guys, who say, Gior, you know, they really didn't give you enough respect. Let me tell you something. I know what I did. And I'm very proud. Oh, well, very well said. And, you know, I'm glad that's, you know, you, I, I had a feeling you would take the higher road approach. I will just say as an Art Davey fan and huge fan of the book, I, I find it to be somewhat of an insult to the history of it all. But, you know, we get it. And this is it's big corporate America, right? This is how they function. It's going to be the narrative they want. So absolutely. Um, so let's, let's move off from the ownership stuff. And, uh, you know, we had actually, we wanted to get your opinion. Now, I know you just said that you haven't followed the product closely, but I'm sure you know the name Ronda Rousey, obviously. Sure. And, and, and she's coming back after a one year layoff. She's going to fight Amanda Nunes, uh, Friday night, December 30th of this year. Uh, what's right. your take? You know, she went on the Ellen show last week and she said this is going to be a final show. Some people maybe uh, a final show for her. And some people maybe took that as kind of promotional tactics to try to just sell extra fights. Does Rhonda still have that allure? Do you think the loss to Holly Holm kind of uh, deflated the balloon, so to speak, or popped a pin in, in her allure? Or is she going to be bigger than ever on the return, in your opinion? You know, the two most popular fighters in the UFC, driving virtually 60% of their pay-per-view revenue in, in, in the last year or so, you know, has been Conor McGregor and Ronda Rousey. And I think that Ronda is and was and will continue to be an incredible uh, a talent and performer, if only because she embodies the first female MMA fighter that really was able to elevate the sport above, above the, the, the gender issue. Uh, she has tremendous personality. She had great grappling skills, were given her judo background. 
And I think that the loss that she experienced, I think, has, uh, uh, has in fact deepened her appeal. You know, if she's able to come back from that and to continue to compete, I think that she will continue to be a star. On the other hand, those who would manage her, those that would uh, try to shepherd her career, know that she's in a very unusual situation. If she does something which damages that image, if she damages her, her uh, credibility as a fighter, it can't help her with MMA, and it could conceivably be a factor in damaging some uh, future film opportunities that she may have. She's at a very interesting crossroads in her life and career right now. But she's a talented young lady who was well-coached by her mother and many others along the way. And I have no doubt that she will continue to be not only a star in the UFC, but she's going to be a Hall of Famer by anyone's measurement or standards. Absolutely. Well said. Uh, you know, I want to just kind of move around the UFC, so to speak, and just get your opinion on it, because I, I find it fascinating to hear from someone who is so entrenched uh, in the foundation of the sport, obviously, in the UFC itself. Uh, it came out, you know, I'm sure you heard that GSP is in a bit of a, a contract squabble with the UFC, bit of a public negotiation taking place here recently, and a nugget that he revealed uh, that no one has really disputed is he said the new UFC owners told him it would cost too much money to reintroduce him and remarket him to newer fans. Now, it's funny, the last time you were in touch with the UFC was 167, November of 2013, uh, coincidentally, Correct. GSP's last fight against Johnny Hendricks. Yes. What, what do you make of that? Is that a promotion? Is that a promoter just negotiation tactics? Does that sound real to you that they couldn't introduce him to the new fans they've made with Connor and Ronda in the past three years? You know, I, I think that may be more of a promotional tactic at this point, if only because uh, those in the know are aware that the UFC is now under an, an obligation and a pressure to create some new stars. And one wants to be able to take advantage of stars that have been there in the recent firmament. And certainly GSP, you know, is one of the great fighters in UFC history. Uh, his success as a 170-pounder is monumental and, and, uh, and, and Hall of Fame by any measurement. So I would think that they would hopefully see him as a property that with, uh, with some marketing, could really uh, do uh, the franchise a lot of good for the next year or two. I would be hard-pressed to believe that they're, in effect, writing him off and uh, putting all of their uh, eggs into some new baskets. GSP, uh, you know, if he wants to come back, given his skills, given his will and his training of Benjamin, I think it would be foolish for them to, uh, to write him off. I suspect that this may be part of a negotiation tactic. And quite frankly, you've seen things like this in boxing in past years. And hopefully, as time moves on, MMA, UFC fighters will continue to be able to command the kind of, of purses and compensation that they deserve. Yeah, well said. And, you know, I wanted to ask you about that um... You know, you mentioned the the sordid history of boxing promoters and and how they've treated boxers. Obviously, the Muhammad Ali Act got introduced. Some might argue it it didn't really help at all. But you know, there's just so much fighter unrest right now between contracts, between the Reebok sponsorship. I'm just curious, um, you know, from where you sit, let's just say you were brought back into the fold and and put in charge. What might be one thing you do? What would be that first action item on Art Davies' list? to just try to 
calm the storm right now. There, you could, I could name ten fighters off the top of my head, high-profile fighters who have either you know threatened to try to get out of their contract or just extremely unhappy with how they've been treated. What might you do to try to you know mend fences, I guess, between management and fighter? Well, you know that's uh, that's that's the key issue right now, and I think you raised a very good question. The truth is, is that that would have to be uh, a top priority. I was somewhat surprised or a little disappointed to hear that in that 58-page document, which MMA Junkie gave some publicity to, that there didn't seem to be much talk about you know increasing compensation for fighters. In all fairness, uh, you can't ignore the importance of the talent. It is the business. Your talent is the business. Uh, I, I'm proud about the fact that, uh, you know, more than half of the people in the UFC, fighters in the UFC Hall of Fame, were people that I booked, matched, and, and, and brought into the UFC. I understood the value of talent, and I think that the new owners, William Morris and Deborah IMG, uh, should remain cognizant of the fact that the development of talent is their primary responsibility. Secondarily to that, I would love to see the UFC take the lead in maybe doing more to develop amateur MMA. You know, as a professional sport, we don't have uh, a real organized amateur base compared to other uh, sports, not only combat sports, but team sports. And I think that there's a real opportunity for the UFC to assume a leadership position there. But certainly, uh, improving the relationship between the fighters uh, has got to be a top priority. Um, I understand the objections to the Reebok deal if you're a fighter and you look, you want sponsorship opportunities. Uh, I think that the new owners have to take this into consideration, and if they intend to continue to grow the brand aggressively in the next two or three years, I think that they've got to make some, uh, some very sophisticated and smart moves to improve that relationship. Talent is everything. Yeah, absolutely. And, and like you said with the amateur MMA too, uh, obviously the IMMAF, is uh, doing some work with that. The UFC doesn't seem to be terribly involved with it, although their fight pass gets on it a little bit. Um, but I definitely right. think that that's, that's certainly a real issue that they should get into as well. Um, kicking back to something you said the last time we got the chance to talk to you, uh, you know, you said when you started the UFC that you thought it would continue to grow until it was the biggest sport in the world. You, you had these ideas that this would continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. So you said that the growth had never surprised you so even in all of those, you know, fantastical images that you had in your head, did you ever imagine that there would be seats selling at a UFC event for $16,000? Cuz we've got front row seats for this weekend going for $16,000 a piece. Ever in your wildest dreams is that something you would think? Well, you know, I always say that to understand the world, you have to have a grasp of history, whether it's politics or sports. And if you take a look at the history of Pancration, and athletes like Polydamus, uh, within a few Olympic Games, you know, the ancient sport of pancreation, which was MMA, you know, in its earliest incarnation, became the most popular sport. So John Milius and I, or Jorge and Gracie and I, knew that if this sport could be launched with the kind of fanfare that we anticipated we would be able to deliver, that this would eventually become the number one combat sport in the world. We knew that the martial arts was everywhere. Every country had a history of combat sports and martial arts. So it was never too far of a stretch for us to, to imagine, as John Milius used to say, that there'll come a night when there'll be 50 million people watching the crowning of an ultimate fighting champion. So the fact that today that a ringside seat at UFC 205 Madison Square Garden goes to 16,000, I'm not surprised. I'm pleased to hear it. And I suspect that in the next 20 years, 
that the uh, crowning of uh, MMA fighters is going to continue to be an important element in, uh, in, in culture around the world. Uh, fighting is something which is understood by people of all backgrounds, cultures, and races and creeds. So well said, Art. I, I mean, I could listen to you talk on, on the history of MMA, on the history of UFC, and just get your take on, on current comings and goings all day. Uh, we ran out of time with you, but I cannot thank you enough for, for giving us your time and just sharing your opinion uh, on the current state of MMA with us. And we hope to catch up with you down the road soon. Nathan and Daniel, it's been a pleasure. Always enjoyed you guys. Would love to come back anytime. My pleasure. So there you have it, Gumby, original owner, co-founder, creator of the UFC, Art Davey. Yeah, and I thought it was so interesting, the stuff that he said uh, that was basically some of the same stuff that came out recently about that Fighters Union document uh, with their, their 10 major demands that they were thinking about. I mean, he said a lot of that in there, and, and I'm not 100% certain whether or not he's like well-versed in that document because it like just came out. But it's so intriguing that what they're asking for is very similar to what he's saying. So one thing I really wanted to highlight was they're asking for what they outlaid, this Professional Fighters Association. Uh, This is Scott Boris's brother, actually, is setting this up. I Um, did not know that. That, That's pretty interesting to me. uh, But it would be an increase in all base pay for fighters at 25K to show and 25K to win. And I think, I don't know, that could be like a negotiation tactic. That seems rather high that they would all of a sudden double the base pay for, let's say, a, you know, Four and one up and coming fighter who's making his UFC debut. Yeah, well, so I will say that too. But in the grand scheme of things, how much is this going to cost the UFC? I I think that this is that would be more detrimental on some of those local cards. But if they could negotiate that down to say twenty and twenty, you know, which is not unreasonable, or eighteen and eighteen, well, something like that. Well. I think you bring up a good point, which is on the local shows, because if a local show only has a gate of, let's say, 900,000, you can't be paying out the fighters more than what the gate takes in. Yeah, well, I mean, some of the gates... On something that's not on pay-per-view. Exactly. Some of the gates lower than that. They're making money in other ways. But, yeah, no, I agree with you. That would probably get negotiated down, and then it wouldn't be too bad. Well, I wanted to bring up the fighters' union thing, just because it was obviously a a big topic of the week. Uh, But, you know, this is something that's going to get played out over the next several months. And it was very interesting to catch up with Art Davey. He has a great mind for the business. He basically created the business. Yeah. So I always love hearing his opinion on things. Let's keep on moving now. We'll go a little more rapid fire. Uh, we have, this is still on the prelims, yeah, mind and, you. And these prelim guys are not making that minimum pay, by the way. <laughs> uh, you have Rashad Evans making his middleweight debut. He is a plus 205 dog against a friend of the show, Tim Kennedy, the minus 245 favorite. Hasn't fought since Stoolgate, has lost to UL Romero in September of 2014. Who you got? See, this is a dog I, I actually really like. You know, despite the fact we had Tim Kennedy on the show, and you know, I'm always a homer for a guy on the show. Th- the time off does worry me about him, especially because he's had a whole bunch of other stuff going on. And, and while Rashad Evans has kind of gotten beat up at 205, this is a new weight class for him. He's a very powerful wrestler. And he's a hard striker, so I see him better in a lot of places than Tim Kennedy. Really good dog pick. How dare you, sir? I do not think Evans has looked good since his return. Uh, I don't care what weight class it's at. I think there's something there. Uh, Maybe just coming back off a knee surgery at an older age. And Tim Kennedy, despite not being around for two years, is obviously in good shape. I'm going Tim Kennedy all day, but much like Habib, I'm an unapologetic Tim Kennedy. Yeah, yeah, I know you are too. (laughs) All right, so we'll move now, and this is what's kicking off 
the prelims on FS1. You have Belial Muhammad, the minus 135 dog, Vicente Luke uh, in most sports books, also around a minus 105. Basically, Vegas's way of saying they don't know what the fuck's going on. Yeah, and I'm a little bit upset that this one didn't wind up Belial Muhammad versus Lyman Good because I thought that was a striking battle that would be one for the ages. I think this is a better fight for Muhammad in that he's not facing a striker that's quite as dangerous. So I'm going to go with Muhammad on this one just by you know technical striking. All right, well, we'll move now to the uh, Fight Pass prelims, which are always uh, fun because you get up-and-coming fighters, and then usually they'll throw two <laughs> veterans on there as, like, the headline of the Fight Pass prelims. In this case, uh, they're all pretty much names. <laughs> they're it, all headliners. <laughs> uh, well, it, it's tough to say that and then kick it off to Caitlin Chikugian and Liz Carmouche. But that Liz being Carmouche said, was, was a headliner. headliner. Yeah, yep. the first bantamweight title fight. So, all right, you got me. That being said, Liz Carmouche is kicking off the show against Caitlin Chikagian. Chikagian is the minus one seventy five favorite. Liz Carmouche, the former Ronda Rousey title challenger, and someone who took Ronda Rousey's back, by the way, and put her in a compromising position at least for a couple of seconds. Uh, Carmouche, the plus one fifty five dog. Who are you taking? So I think Chikagian is so high on everybody's list because of how good her striking looked last time out. But I'm not sure she's ever fought somebody who grapples like Carmouche, which I think makes Carmouche a really live dog here. Uh, at what? What did you say? Plus. Uh, plus one fifty five in most sports. Plus one fifty five is a is a nice number, and like I said, she's got good grappling. So hey, give it to her on the grappling side. I'm going with Carmouche. You were twelve of thirteen in your parlay I was last 12 week. Twelve right? of thirteen in a full card parlay that was a one dollar bet to win nine thirty, uh, and I lost that De Silva fight with the spinning back fist. So in other words, when Gumby says to take a dog, you take him seriously. Yeah, I had, take that dog. I had Ferguson, Sanchez, and uh, one other dog in the main card. I can't remember, but but I had three dogs in the main card. All right. We'll move on now. You have Raphael Natal. He is a minus 155 favorite. How about this dog, Tim Bosch, the heavy hitter, plus 135? I'm actually not going with Bosch on this one just because I think he's going to be on his back for most of the night. Um, Natal, he's pretty clear with his game plan every time. He's going to grapple you like crazy. And while Bosch has definitely got a counter and he's definitely got some takedown defense, I, I just think Natal's cardio keeps up longer than Bosch here, and he wins a you know a grind him out decision. All right, and uh, main eventing, so to speak, the fight pass prelims. You have a uh, hardcore MMA fan favorite, Jim Miller, taking on Tiago Alves at 155 pounds. Jim Miller coming off a win at UFC 200 over Gomi. Not sure how much that really tells you about anything, <laughs> but who you got here, Gumby? Ah, this one's really hard for me because it, it is does go back to kind of the Art Davy days of the striker versus grappler, right? Because Jim Miller is the nice grappler. My heart says uh, Jim Miller. My brain says pick Tiago Alves. Uh, Tiago Alves feels a little bit more dangerous on paper, but if it becomes like a dogfight, I always want to go Jim Miller. Uh, yeah, I just can't see Jim Miller dragging him into a dogfight, right? He lost the dogfight to Rick Story, but Jim Miller's not the kind of person who dictates the pace all that much. He finishes it from where you bring it to him. So I, I think this is an Alves fight as, as much as I hate to say that. Anything to play into the fact that Alves is making his 155 pound debut uh, I, I, I mean he is a big he was a big 170 or you know never mind a 155 or it wouldn't surprise me to see him miss weight and feel like crap uh, so Alves the minus 160 favorite in most sports books Jim Miller you get as a plus 140 dog your final call Gumby I, I'm going Alves all right fair enough well this has been our most loaded show of top turtle ever we thank you so much for listening you of course can download subscribe like uh, show us some love anywhere a podcast is being streamed. Tune in, Stitcher, SoundCloud, iTunes. Head on over to MMA-Manifesto.com. 
our uh, mother ship, so to speak. We're also on overtime.news. Uh, and sometimes you can even catch us on mixedmartialarts.com. So that being said, I am David Tremonti. He is Daniel Gumby Vreeland. This was Top Turtle MMA Podcast, episode 44. Thank you so much for listening.